be discussing the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. This is Sutta number 140 of the Majjhimunikaya, and the title is The Exposition of the Elements. Okay, the Sutta begins one time when the Buddha has been wandering alone through the state of Magadha. Magadha was the <coughs> largest state in northeast India, corresponding to present-day Bihar. And usually the Buddha travels together with the Sangha, with the order of monks, but on this occasion, for a special reason, which I'll explain, he was traveling alone. Then, after wandering for some time, he comes to Rajagaha, the capital of the state of Magadha, present-day Rajgir, and night is starting to fall, and so he comes to a potter's house, and he asks the potter whether he can spend the night in the shed, the potter's shed, the workshop. And so the potter says that it's completely all right with him, but he says that there is another monk already staying there. And since this monk has been there first, he says to the Buddha, you should get the consent of that monk. Since if that monk, for some reason, <laughs> doesn't want to share these quarters, then the Buddha will not be allowed to stay there and will have to move on. Okay, and now the text explains that at the time there was a young man named Pukusati who had gone forth from the home life into homelessness out of faith in the Blessed One. And he was staying in the potter's workshop. And so the Buddha comes up to this monk named Pukusati and asks him if it would be all right if he can spend the night in the workshop. And Pukusati says, that this workshop is big enough, there is plenty of room. He said, this is very important, he says, the potter's workshop is large enough, friend, let the Venerable One stay as long as he likes. He uses here the word abuso, which is just a friendly term, it's not an especially respectful term, it's the word which is usually used at that time it was used amongst in the Sangha for the monks who are on the same level to address each other. Nowadays it's used as a term with which a senior monk addresses a junior monk. <coughs> okay, now at this point there's a background story which doesn't come in the sutta itself but it's given in the commentary to explain who this Pukusati is and why this meeting took place. Pukusati, according to the commentary, originally had been a young king of a state which is now in Pakistan, the state called Gandhara. He was the r ruling over Gandhara in the capital city of Takshila. And at the time, there was a lot of trade going back and forth between the state of Gandhara and the state of Magadha. And through traders who were coming and going from Magadha and back, King Pukusati had struck up a friendship with the king of Magadha, whose name was Bimbisara. Bimbisara as most of you will know, was a very devout disciple of the Buddha. And so Pukusati and Bimbisara would regularly exchange letters through the merchants who were traveling between the two states. And their friendship became so close that they made an agreement that if any precious gems are discovered in one state, the king would send some of them to 
his friend in the other state. And so one time Fukusati found some precious um, gems from which he made beautiful carpets and he sent these carpets to Bimbisara in Magadha. And when, Magad, when Bimbisara received the carpets, he was wondering, what can I give my friend King Fukusati in return? And when he pondered this, he realized that no gems made out of precious substances, material substances, would be of any real worth. But the precious gems that he had in his state were the three gems, the three ratana of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And so he sent his friend a letter which was inscribed on a sheet of gold in which he described the virtues of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and he gave a brief synopsis of the practice of meditation on breathing, Anapanasati, an excerpt from the Anapanasati Sutta. And he had this sheet of gold rolled up, put into a beautiful kind of casket for carrying it, and he sent it through his merchants to King Fukusati. <clears throat> and when King Fukusati opened the casket, took out the golden sheet, and started to read about the merits, the virtues of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, he was immediately suffused with joy, with rapture, with this piti and somanasa, rapture and joy, so that even the hairs of his arms were standing up and he was just ecstatic with happiness. <coughs> and since this letter had very concise instructions on the meditation, on in and out breathing. King Fukusati, he was sitting in seclusion, right after concluding the letter, he started to practice mindfulness of breathing. And because he had very mature mental faculties, or paramis, from previous lives, as soon as he started to practice, he got into deep concentration, deep samadhi, going from the regular consciousness to the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, right up to the fourth jhana, till his mind was perfectly absorbed in this profound concentration and bliss and equanimity of all the jhanas, especially the fourth jhana. Now, <laughs> The question might come, how Fukusati was able to go into the jhanas so quickly and so easily? This is, according to the commentary, because of some event that took place in a previous life during the time of the past Buddha, the Buddha Kasapa. At that time, it was towards the end of the sasana of the Buddha Kasapa, there were a group of monks meditating very earnestly on the top of a mountain. And they were meditating so earnestly that they just neglected their food and they passed away without having reached any higher attainments. And they were reborn in the heavenly world. Actually, one of them achieved arhatship, one became a non-returner, but the others just passed away as ordinary men, but were reborn in the heavenly world, then reborn in the human world. And one of those meditators was Pukusati. And so his faculties of meditation were already quite ripe. Okay, now as a king, when he was the king, once he was able to gain the jhanas through mindfulness of breathing, <laughs> he went up, spent most of his time in seclusion in his private chambers 
was not interested in the affairs of state anymore until the ministers and the counselors, they were rather perplexed, wondering why our king is not attending to the affairs of state. They started to complain to him and they thought maybe this was due to a trick from this king from Magadha that he wants to, the king from Magadha wants to attack Gandhara and the way he's doing this is to get <laughs> the king of Gandhara interested in meditation <laughs> then he won't have any interest in wars and armies and then he could send his troops and attack and conquer the kingdom <laughs> so when all of these complaints started to pour in to um, King Bukusati then he was pondering and he thought what do I really want to do? Do I want to go on becoming the king? Do I want to continue on as the king of this country? Just attending to affairs of state, then eventually get old, die and have to go on to rebirth elsewhere? Or do I want to take full advantage of this very rare opportunity of following the Buddha's path right to the very end? And so when he reflected in this way, he thought, let me appoint somebody else as king in my place and I will take to the homeless life. And so while he was still in his palace, he sent one of his attendants down to the shop to purchase some pieces of cloth, saffron pieces of cloth, and to buy a razor. He to buy a pot and to go on arms round. And so the attendant went down, brought the pieces of cloth, saffron cloth, the pot, gave them to the king. Then the king took a razor or knife, cut off his hair, cut off his beard, put away his royal garments, put on these saffron robes, took his pot, went down from the kingdom, and nobody recognized him. <laughs> they thought that this was just some ascetic who had come up to have a conversation with the king. And so he was able to slip out of the, pa the palace very easily and left the capital city heading for the southeast, thinking at that time that he would go to Rajgir, to Rajagaha, to meet his master the Buddha. Now he had come to Rajagaha and he came to the Buddha's monastery in Rajagaha and inquired where is the Blessed One, the Master? And they told him, sorry friend, you've come to the wrong place. Now the Master is in Savati. Savati is some distance away in the northwest, northwest of Madhava, Rajagaha. And so Pukusati now thought, well, the next day I have to set out on this journey for Savati to see the Buddha. But it's getting dark and so I will rest and spend the night someplace along the way and he continued walking till he came to this potter's house and he asked the potter for permission to stay there and the potter agreed to this. Now the Buddha every day he would go into the special meditation attainment called the attainment of Mahakaruna the meditate the Mahakaruna Samapati, which means the meditation on great compassion in which he spreads his boundless compassion all over the world. Then when he emerges from that meditation, his mind is very, you say, very soft, very malleable, very sharp through that practice of great compassion and he ponders or reflects who can I benefit 
on this day. And when the Buddha did this, there came into his range of vision this young former king, Pupusati, who had left the palace taking on the life of an ascetic out of faith and devotion to himself. And he saw something further about Pukusati, which Pukusati himself did not know. He was able to see the karmic forces working in the life of this young monk. And he realized that there was a very powerful negative karma from some deed in the distant past which was about to produce its fruit the very next day. And so that karma was going to ripen in such a way that this young monk who had undergone such a great act of renunciation, of abnegation to follow the religious life was about to be hit by a wild cow and killed to die. And he realized because of that, if he was just to wait at Savati for Pukusati to arrive there, Pukusati would never come because he would be killed before he could arrive at Savati. And so the Buddha, in his great compassion, decided to leave the monastery without telling any other monks and going the whole distance, perhaps more than a hundred miles, going there alone at a very rapid rate in order to meet this Pukusati and to give him an instruction in the Dhamma, in the teaching, which would bring him to some high state of attainment. So though he would die, he would not die as an ordinary person, but as one established in one of the noble fruits, noble stages of enlightenment. And now the Buddha also wanted to set a particular atmosphere for the teaching to take effect. And this is an interesting point that I'm not quite sure why this is so, but he didn't want to appear in his full, sort of, you might say the full glory of a Buddha, showing all of the features of a Buddha. Perhaps, this is just my own conjecture, he thought that if he appeared as a Buddha with all of his dignity and the full characteristics, then maybe Pukusati would have been too excited and too filled with, ex with rapture and joy to be able to listen very calmly to the teaching over that one night. Because there was only this one night for giving the teaching, no other chance after that. And so, this is again what the Buddha might have thought, that if I just appear as an ordinary wandering monk, then this Pukusati would not feel any special emotions when he meets me, and then I'll be able to give him the teaching and to listen to it, with full attention and be able to understand it and to penetrate into the truth of our teaching. Does that sound like a good conception? Yes, but uh, with all these royalties we should never forget that there is the potter which has a blameless occupation. Mm. And that was in those days, according to my teacher Narvas, mm. Professor, it was those days that the potters were the friend of the monks mm. because of their blameless occupation mm. on one side and because of their uh, natural 
tendency for samadhi because when you are doing pottery you have to be on, on the spot with your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I tell that here because we in Sri Lanka we have neglected the potters and have let them die mm-hmm. and getting plastic yeah, plastic plastics yeah. and aluminium for Alzheimer's yeah, and all yeah. that. Uh, and uh, these wonderful people have no living anymore. Yeah, yeah. So here it is where the royalties yeah, yeah. be. Even in India it's like that. I remember years ago when I traveled in India, when you're on the train and you get the tea, they give you this little clay cup and you just drink the tea and people throw it away and then the clay breaks and okay, it just becomes soil again. Okay, earlier this year I traveled in India and what are they serving the tea in on the trains now? Not the little clay cups anymore. It's the little plastic cups. But what are the people doing in India? Drink, open the window, throw the plastic cup away. (laughs) And the plastic doesn't break up and turn into earth but it just remains on the tracks. So you see hundreds of them all over the railroad Okay, so now the Buddha has come here in the appearance just of an ordinary wandering monk. And this is also, this is an interesting point. I mean, some people question this and they say, well, the Buddha must have looked just like an ordinary monk and the later tradition, which portrays him as having this halo and all of the special features, the lump on the head, the special marks, that's all later creation. My own belief is that the the Buddha did have these special features, but they were not very gross or very evident so that one would see them automatically, so that they would be very imposing and immediately impressive but rather I think that they were very subtle so we would have to look somewhat closely to be able to discern them and I think the Buddha through his developed mind was able to modulate the way people perceive him so if the Buddha wants to inspire immediate confidence in somebody then he will make an aditana a mental determination so that the other person will see him in all of his glory of a Buddha. For example, there's a sutta when the Buddha meets with a Brahmin named Dona, and this Brahmin Dona sees the Buddha sitting under a tree, and he's so awed by the Buddha that he doesn't even know whether this is a human being or a deva, a god. And when the Buddha meets the Brahmins, the Brahmins rely very much on these 32 special characteristics. And so then the Buddha would display all these 32 marks for the Brahmins to see. But under other conditions, the Buddha can work a feat such that the other person will not particularly notice his, let's say his, glorious bodily features and also to some extent this will depend upon the mindset of the person I like to compare this I I don't know who the current rock stars are but this goes back about 30 years ago when at least 35 years ago when say a rock group like the Rolling Stones hit the, the scene and then the Teenage girls would be watching the television or looking in the magazines and they see the picture and they say, I know Mick, Mick Jagger, and they see something which is so overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) And yet then the father comes into the room and sees the television set and says, what is all this noise and who are these scraggly, unkempt misfits? They see everything completely different. The teenage girl sees this overwhelmingly um, wonderful, impressive 
musical star and this music is uplifting and ecstatic, elevating. The father sees this scraggly, unkept teenage boy and this loud, blasting nonsense uh, cacophony. And so I think in the same way the Buddha can affect <laughs> other people so that some people will see him and think this, like Mahakasava, when he first met the Buddha, he, he was the Buddha, he saw the Buddha sitting under the tree and immediately as soon as his eyes fell on the Buddha he knew this is the master, this is the enlightened one, this is my teacher. But in the case of Pukusati, the Buddha comes on purpose to see him and Pukusati, when he sees him, he just sees this is another wandering ascetic and says, if you want to stay here, friend, you can stay here. Yeah, I think uh, we have enough proof that the Buddha was not seven or eight foot high no, because no, he no. could ex exchange his robes with yeah. Kasapa. Yeah. So there we know him to maintain uh, exaggerated relations. Uh, yeah. But the idea of him being six or seven feet, uh, eight or seven feet tall, that is, I think, just all part of later tradition. That's not amongst the 32 signs of the great man. Okay, so now this is the background story. And they come together in this Hado's workshop. Okay, so the Buddha comes into the workshop. He takes some of the grass, makes himself a seat, sits down cross-legged, and spends most of the night sitting in meditation. And this monk, Pukusati, is also sitting and spends much of the night in meditation. Then, after a certain time, perhaps they were both taking a break from their sitting, then the Blessed One thought to himself that this young man is conducting himself in a very inspiring, inspiring way. Let me question him and open a conversation with him. Now according to the commentary, the Buddha already knew that Pukusati had gone forth in his name out of faith in him. But he has to find some way to open the conversation. Just like if you see somebody at a party and you want to open a conversation, you might say, haven't I met you someplace before, even though you know you've never seen the person. It's just a way of sort of breaking the ice. So he says, under whom have you gone forth, Bhikkhu? Who is your teacher and whose Dhamma, whose doctrine do you profess? And so Pukusati says, there is, friend, the recluse, the ascetic Gotama, the son of the Sakyan clan, who's gone forth into homelessness. He is said to be the enlightened one, the teacher, the supremely awakened one, and so on. He is the one that I've gone forth under, and he is my teacher, and I follow his Dhamma, his doctrine. Then the Buddha asks, <laughs> but where is the Buddha now living? Again, it's of course, he, he knows where the Buddha is living, but it's again a way to continue the conversation further. And Pukusati says, there is a city in the north called Savati, and that's where the Buddha is now living. Then the Buddha asks, if you, have you ever seen the Buddha before? And if you met him, would you recognize him? And Pukusati says, no, I've never met him before, and I would never recognize him, even if I met him. Okay, now the Buddha says, I have to say it's a little strange, the Buddha says, Monk, Bhikkhu, I will teach you the Dhamma, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. 
why I find it a little strange is that it's not clear whether the Buddha is saying this in the sense I will teach you the Dhamma of this ascetic named Gotama, the one who is your teacher or whether he's saying I will teach you this Dhamma that I follow under the assumption that Pukusati thinks that he is following some other teacher that I say it's a little not clear from the sutra I think uh, he would know that the assumption is there. That they're following the same. Oh, yes. Perhaps that came out, maybe, uh, in some way, maybe it was not recorded. The Buddha indicated that he was following the same Dhamma, in a sense. Okay, so now we come to the part which is delivering the actual teaching, the start of the teaching. And now this is going to be a very, very deep teaching, a very, very subtle, profound, and wide, comprehensive teaching. And the Buddha knows the level that Pukusati has already attained. This is through his special faculty of knowing the level of the faculties of other persons. And so, normally, if he meets a newly ordained monk, he will begin with giving very basic instruction in the precepts, in restraint of the senses, in developing mindfulness, in struggling how to overcome the hindrances, how to develop basic meditation practice. But the Buddha was aware that Pukusati had already accomplished this. He knew that he had achieved the jhanas, the meditative absorptions, and what he was lacking, what he needed, was the instruction in developing insight or wisdom. And so he begins directly with a very profound teaching the commentary says it's a teaching on ultimate shunyata, on ultimate emptiness, in order to show him the direct path to the final goal, to arahatsha. And so now first the Buddha is going to lay down the udesa, that is the summary or outline of the teaching, then he will give the vibhanga, the analysis, the detailed explanation. Okay, first I'll take the, I'll just read the summary, then we'll take the sutta phrase by phrase. Okay, this person, the word here in Pali, Purisa, this individual, this individual person consists of six elements, six bases of contact, and 18 kinds of mental exploration, and has four foundations. The tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands upon these four foundations. And when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over him, he is called a sage at peace. One should not neglect wisdom, one should preserve truth, one should cultivate relinquishment, and one should train for peace. This is the summary of the exposition of the six elements. <coughs> okay, having given this summary or outline, now the Buddha is going to explicate these, this teaching to make it, to give a more detailed explanation. And actually, the details sort of unfold in two steps. There's actually, in this sutta, we could say three levels of teaching, not two. First, 
the summary, then a moderately elaborated version, then a fully detailed version. Okay, now we come to the moderate level of explanation. Okay, the person consists of six elements. What is the meaning of this? Here the Buddha says the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space element, and the consciousness element. This will be explained actually more fully in the detailed treatment. So we'll just go on to the next. This person consists of six bases of contact. Or we could say the person has six bases of contact. Six sense faculties through which one makes contact with the world. What are those six bases? The eye base, the ear base, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So one has these six bases the eye base through which one makes contact with forms, the ear base contact with sounds and so on, and then the mind base through which one makes contact with the whole world of ideas, mental images, everything apart from the sense object. <coughs> okay, third, the person consists of 18 kinds of mental exploration. This is called in Pali Manopavichara. I think I've, I've gone through this pretty recently. <laughs> anyway, we could just do it very briefly again. Okay, what are these 18 kinds of mental exploration or mental examination? Okay, when one sees a form with the eye, then one can explore a form which is a basis for joy, or pleasant feeling. Or one can explore a form which produces displeasure, grief, unhappiness. Or one explores a form which produces equanimity, a form towards which one is indifferent or neutral. Okay, so one has, one has the form, the object of the visual consciousness producing these three types of feeling, joy, displeasure or grief, and neutral feeling. And similarly with all the other six senses, hearing a sound, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, an idea with the mind. The idea can give rise to joy, it can give rise to displeasure, grief, sadness, annoyance, or it can just be a cause of indifference equanimity. So we have six sense objects giving rise to the three types of feelings. So we have these 18 types of mental exploration. Okay, now the Buddha says this person has four foundations. These are the four foundations, not for an ordinary person, but these are the four foundations of an arahant, the four supports or standing points in the inner life of the arahant. The Pali word is adhita. These are like, okay, the four foundations, so you could all call them the rocks on which in the sea of samsara, the sea of changing events, the four islands or stones upon which the arahant is perfectly established in his inner life. Wisdom, truth, chag 
wisdom, panya, truth, satya, or even reality, we could say, more than just truthful speech, but standing upon reality, standing upon relinquishment or renunciation, and upasana, standing upon inner peace. But now, in paragraph 12, the Buddha shows that in order to reach those four foundations, in other words, in order to achieve arhatship, one has to begin by developing their seeds right here and now. And the way one begins developing these seeds is by not neglecting wisdom. In other words, by being diligent in cultivating insight. Insight wisdom. By preserving truth. By speaking truth. By living in accordance with truth. One should cultivate relinquishment. And the, the word chaka has actually two levels of meaning, or two applications, we could say. In day-to-day -day life, it can mean generosity, dana, giving, pra the practice of giving. And it also means, at a higher level, inner giving up. Giving up one's own attachments, giving up one's own clinging and clinging and grasping. And one should train for peace. That is, one has to discipline the mind to become calm, collected, concentrated through the practice of serenity, samatha meditation, and to still and end the defilements through the practice of insight meditation. Okay, so now the Buddha shows here in paragraph 13 the preparatory or the preparation for gaining the four foundations at the end of the path. So he takes us, or he takes Pukusati, he shows Pukusati, you could say the highest attainment first, and now he goes back to the level at which this monk is already established in order to show him what he has to cultivate, what he has to practice to reach the highest attainment starting right at his own level. And he does this since Pukasati is already quite well developed in meditation, in the jhanas. But what he lacks is knowledge of how to explore and investigate his own existence with wisdom. He, he lacks this teaching on the real nature of phenomena which the Buddha will now give him. And the Buddha does this, he raises the question, how does one not neglect wisdom? In other words, how does one cultivate wisdom? Then he brings in the elements again, the elements that he mentioned earlier. He says there are these six elements, the <coughs> earth element, the water element, the fire air element, the air element, space element, and consciousness element. And now he's going to analyze each of the elements in turn. Okay, even though I've gone through the elements several times, we'll take it again. Okay, what is the earth <coughs> element? The earth element may be either internal or external. Okay, now, what is the internal earth element? 
whatever internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. Then the Buddha enumerates some um, 20 parts of the body, tissues and organs of the body, which we could say exemplify the earth elements. Hairs of the head, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, and so on, right through to the contents of the stomach, feces, or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. This is called the internal earth element. Now both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply earth <coughs> elements. The earth element is, and actually all four elements, are really four characteristics of material phenomena. Even though the Buddha enumerates certain parts of the body which are solid or hard, this is just a kind of device for showing particularly clear instances of the earth element. But the real characteristic of the earth element is hardness or solidity. And according to the Buddha's philosophical teaching, every instance of matter, material phenomena, contains all four of the elements together, not just one. So even though certain something might be hard, like this glass, is hard. So we say this glass is external earth element just because the earth element is especially obvious or clear. But within this glass we have all four elements together. Earth element has the property of hardness or solidity and it is what serves as a foundation or basis for the other elements. Just as people and buildings and automobiles all stand upon the earth and are based on the earth, so all the other elements are based on the earth element. And the earth element is able to serve as the basis for the other elements because it has this property of hardness or solidity. The, I'll go through all four elements now, just so we could see them all together first. The water element is what has the property of fluidity. It's what flows. What oozes and it also has the function of binding together because you know if you have say dry earth dust and you put it together into a lump then when you remove the hands all the sand just falls to pieces but if you take water and you mix the soil with the water then it holds together the water is actually that has that function of cohesion of binding together so that aspect of matter which binds together that is the water or liquid element did I say the earth element has the property of cohesion? it's the water element has the property of cohesion okay the fire element that is the element of you could say of heat any physical phenomenon, our own bodies, outer objects, has some degree of heat. Even if it's cold, when you touch a block of ice, it's cold, but that's because it has less heat than our body does, compared to something at, in Antarctica or the Arctic Circle, the block of ice maybe is, is warm. <laughs> That's the heat element. 
So the fire element is what has the property of heat or maturation because when something gets warm then it changes its form. That's the work of the heat element. And the air element or is what has the property of expansion, distension. For example, if we have a balloon and we blow into it, it swells up because the air comes into it. It's the air which makes it expand outwards. And the air element also is what has the property of movement, of oscillation or vibration. I'll just put these on the board. A meaning which has almost gotten lost in it. Okay, maybe we will stop here for the evening, then we'll come back and go through the elements more methodically and thoroughly next week. If there's any questions on any points that came up in this evening's discussion or any comments, <coughs> then please feel welcome to me. Maybe we, we use the word earth element. Yeah. We could use the word predominant earth element. That, you mean for showing what is in a solid object? Yes. Actually, that is a good point. I should have actually elaborated. Predominant. Yes. In solid objects, the earth element is predominant. So, for example, the glass is solid because the earth element is obvious or evident. But within the glass, though it's solid, you could see it's holding its shape. It doesn't just dissolve. That's because the binding property is the water element. It has some degree of heat, maybe less than my body because it feels a little cool, but there's some degree of heat in it, otherwise it would just be at absolute zero. And though it's not moving or expanding like a balloon, but there's a certain level the molecules are in constant motion, vibration. That's the work of the air element. Yeah, the molecule, molecule yeah. movement indicates if it is cold or hot. Yeah. When there is, when it would be a total uh, stoppage, yeah. which we cannot produce, and there is no such thing in the universe. But it is done very, very slow. While when it goes faster and faster it becomes warmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thermospotal you have is preventing these movements interacting. Mm. So you have ice inside, the fast movement cannot touch the slow movement inside and reverse. Mm. Mm. Okay, any, any questions or comments? Okay, then we will, we will stop. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.